Greetings, dear viewers. We are happy to welcome you on Alatra TV. My name is Polina, and my co-hosts today are Olga, Alexei, and Mark. Hello, guys. So we are excited to, to, to have on our today's live broadcast, uh, Laird Scranton. Laird is a frequent visitor of radio shows uh, in the United States and also of programs on Alatra TV during the past time of preparation to the conference's uh, Kaleidoscope of Facts. Uh, Laird, uh, is, during a long period of time, Laird has been exploring why so many ancient cultures separated by time and distance share remarkably similar cosmological philosophies and religious symbolism. Laird reveals how these creation traditions uphold the idea that ancient instruction gave birth to the great civilizations, each of which preserve fragments of the original knowledge. And uh, I would like to ask our technical support to show a short introduction to our interview. Welcome to the show. We are so happy to see you here again with us. And uh, we have the first uh, question for you. The you. Um, concept of uh, creation of the world from the primordial sound uh, is present in uh, different myths all around the world. And um, sounds and um, sign or signs or symbols are often present inseparably in the myths of many peoples. What, in your opinion, is the role of um, sound in the physics of our universe, of our world? And if you take into account the information encrypted in the ancient myths you studied for so long. Um, when we get to the bottom of these ancient uh, symbolic traditions, concepts of creation relate to a handful of dynamics of energy that are very understandable. These are scientific concepts um, relating to how energy behaves. Um, to understand the role of sound properly, you have to understand what those dynamics are. They're very, very simple. Um, the first idea is that when two qualities of energy come together, which is what um, is being put forward in these ancient traditions, the idea that a non-material energy and a material energy come together to catalyze 
the processes of consciousness, of creation, and of biology. And when those two streams of energy come together, the first dynamic of energy is that they tend to spin. And spinning has several effects. The first thing it does is it evokes um, resonance, which is sound, and it evo uh, the resonance evokes resistance. And resistance is effectively mass. And the formation of mass has an effect of slowing uh, the rate of time. It, it affects the, the rate of uh, the distance at which light can travel, and it has the net effect of slowing uh, the rate of time. Uh, these concepts relate to Einstein's theory of relativity and his famous formula, formula E equals mc squared. Um, one of the, the primary conclusions of that formula is that as mass is created, which is the equivalent of the concept of accelerating a body, that time frame slows down. So central to that process is the concept of resonance. Um, in ancient traditions, the, the example you're probably most familiar with is um, the concept of Om in the traditions of India. This is a sound that's associated with Ganesha, the elephant god in Hinduism. And um, I, I published an entire book about Ganesha uh, demonstrating how the underlying symbolism of Ganesha is to these same concepts of energy. Um, we can understand that through comparative study. Um, since each of these ancient traditions preserves a subset of the original teaching, we can learn more about any concept by comparing uh, how many uh, other different ancient cultures understood the same concept or the same symbol. Uh, my work begins with a tribe, a modern-day African tribe called the Dogen, who have made it their societal imperative to preserve original forms of the symbolic tradition. And their culture unfolds um, aspects of several different ancient traditions, aspects including words from different languages and and civic practices from ancient Egypt, rituals from that compared to Judaism, and a symbolic tradition that compares to Buddhism. So the Dogen make a very good entry point to this, this kind of study. We can tell from the Dogen references, which are, that are, which are scientific in nature, um, we can relate those, those um, scientific statements to the statements in Hinduism about Ganesha, um, by way of symbolism, by way of symbolic icons and symbolic words that the Dogen use that tie positively to the, the Hinduism uh, symbolism. So resonance is, is one of the, the aspects of energy that is central to the formation of, um, of material forms and of consciousness and of life. Beyond that, we're dealing with an instructed tradition where the teachers of the tradition, any, any good teacher, if you, if you think back on teachers you've, you've experienced who you admired, any good teacher understands that different people learn in different ways. And so when they try to communicate an idea or a concept, they'll try to frame that idea from more than one perspective. They'll try to frame it in more than one way. Um, knowing that different people will come to understand it in different ways. 
in ancient times, the concern was how to express symbolism in a way that a future audience such as ourselves, who would recognize the science, would understand what they're talking about. And so to increase the chances of that, they expressed ideas in relation to several different sets of metaphors, um, hoping that one or another of those metaphors would resonate with us. And those metaphors are, are drawn from everyday world experience. One of those metaphors that we're familiar with is the idea of the formation of a spoken word from uh, vibrations of sound that we create. So sound is, is um, important to that metaphor. The stages in the formation of a spoken word relate to stages of material creation um, and sort of help us, those stages help us categorize where a certain symbolism belongs in the process. Um, beyond that, sound is one of the ways that illustrates dynamics of energy that cross the boundary between non-materiality and materiality. There is a dynamic across that boundary that's referred to anciently as the dynamic of unity to multiplicity. But in practical terms, in terms of in relation to energy, it expresses itself as a one to seven ratio. It's the ratio we see in musical tones, the idea that vibrations can produce seven musical tones of a musical scale. Or that light uh, shown through a crystal, white light shown through a crystal can evoke seven colors of a rainbow. Um, any effect, natural effect that we see in the world that expresses itself in that one to seven ratio, we can presume or infer crosses that boundary between non-materiality and materiality. And consequently, the roots of that process um, reside ultimately on the non-material side of things, not on the material side of things, which is what the Dogen say. So sound is is central to that that the whole conception of of um, of these processes of creation when we want when we choose to look at uh, those processes from the perspective of vibration and sound. Does that give very much, Lord, and uh, we are happy to announce uh, to our viewers that uh, January thirteen, the conference most ancient sign Alatra will be held within the framework of the project Kaleidoscope of Facts, and uh, we are researching uh, the Alatra sign, which is found all over the world on artifacts from different areas. And uh, let's watch a small video right now about this sign, and we will come back.
Could you share the information that you have gained while researching different cultures of the world about Alatra sign? Yes, and it relates directly to the concepts we were just talking about. One of the central themes of the symbolic tradition is trying to express the idea of non-material and material energies coming together because it's that event that catalyzes all of the material forms and all of the process or all of the effects of creation that we experience. Um, the earliest expression of that symbol that we know of know of uh, is at the Gobekli Tepe site uh, in, in southeastern Turkey. This is, um, um, for people who might not know, is an 11,000 year old archeological site that consists of many circular enclosures with large stone pillars that was deliberately buried in ancient times and so preserved beautiful carvings of animals and of symbols um, that have, uh, since the 1990s have been excavated. And one of the symbols that appears on those pillars, we saw in the video, it's the image of the Alat Ra symbol uh, expressed there um, in the figure of what looks like an Egyptian sun glyph resting above um, an, an arch or um, uh, in, in the English language, a parentheses. Um, now, when dealing with symbols, we have an inherent problem of interpretation of a symbol. Uh, 9,000 BC, 11,000 years ago, was some 6,000 years prior to the first written texts that we know about. And so we don't have any textual reference to go to to refer to to understand what, what did they mean when they placed that symbol. In ancient times and in, mo in modern um, symbolic connections to non-materiality, meaning is confirmed through a process of self-confirmation of meaning by repeating the same message in more than one way, the same way I was saying a good teacher repeats the same message in more than one way we come to understand the meanings of symbols by recognizing deliberate confirmation of meaning in certain ancient symbols. When we find that confirmation of meaning, we can be confident that we're dealing with an original form of this tradition because one of the first things that normally gets lost in translation as these concepts and symbols move forward in time are the aspects of, of the symbolism that confirm each other. So at the Gobekli Tepe site, the site is interpreted as the earliest example of a sanctuary. Anciently, the concept of a sanctuary is the place where non-materiality and materiality come together. And so on these Gobekli Tepe pillars, we see beautiful carved images of animals but we also see carved images of certain symbols and signs we, whose meanings we might not understand. From my perspective, I see that virtually every one of the carved symbols is expressing the same concept as the definition of a sanctuary. They all relate to the concept of non-materiality and materiality coming together. Now, I already mentioned that the dynamics of energy, the dynamics of those energies coming together is symbolized by the elephant god Ganesha. 
through my studies and through the Dogen references, I understood that Ganesha represents the material side of that equation. But the Dogen say that there's also a, a non-material counterpart to all of those same dynamics. And so I could see that there should have been an ancient concept of a female Ganesha whose symbolism is associated with the non-material domain in the same way that the male Ganesha is symbolized, uh, symbolizing material side energies. And the relationship between those elephants, those elephant deities in Hinduism is the concept of an embrace. And so I did research and, and tracked down ancient references to a highly secretive um, concept in ancient cultures, the concept of male and female Ganeshas in an, uh, pictured in an embrace with each other. Um, the concept was so secretive that at 1100 AD, it was banned from inclusion in a master volume on Buddhism in China by an emperor, uh, actually banned from any reference in China. Um, I find, find no example, no artistic example of it survived in India. Um, I find no artistic example of it survived in China, but it did survive in Japan with um, uh, Shingon Buddhism. It's the concept of the Kanjiten. And I was able to turn up instructions for how, uh, if you were going to represent this in art, how it should be represented in the form of the figure of a brass statue and things like that. Well, at Gobekli Tepe, on the same pillar where we find the Alat Ra symbol, we find just above it, what from a distance looks like the image of a stylized H, but when we focus more in more in more detail on that image, we realize it's of the carved images of two elephants. So just above the Alat Ra image, we have a very strong suggestion that what's being represented is the dynamic of these energies coming together. Now, another way to understand the Alat Ra symbol on the, that pillar is that one of the metaphors, uh, there are metaphors assigned to help us um, remember scientific information. These, uh, this is a concept called mnemonics. It's a, a memory device that if you can associate a concept with an image or with um, uh, some other kind of action, uh, that it makes it much easier to remember um, uh, factual information. So what the, um, the notion of the star Sirius becomes an icon for non-materiality in the symbolic tradition. And the sun, referred to as Ra in Egypt, becomes an icon for materiality. In the Dogen tradition, they preserve a drawing that they describe as Sirius and the sun coming together that takes a similar form to the Alat Ra symbol. So we understand when we see it um, on the Gobekli Tepe pillar, situated there just before the two Ganesha, the two elephant images, that it also represents non-materiality and materiality coming together. The same is true for any other number of symbols at Gobekli Tepe. We may be familiar with the pair of carved arms that emerge from the side of, of a pillar and extend down the pillar and with hands that wrap around the end in this shape, fingers touching together, that represents the concept of an embrace. It's the same embrace 
that we're talking about with the two energies. We can confirm that because in the ancient Egyptian language, one of the words for pillar is also the word for the concept of embrace. In fact, we find that nearly every major cosmological term in the ancient Egyptian language has a second meaning that means to embrace. That's how important the concept is. Now, another symbolic way of representing that concept is through geometry. The geometry of a circle is a single-sided figure. It, a single-sided figure corresponds to the concept of unity, which we associate with non-materiality. The figure of a square is a four-sided figure, figure, which we associate with the four dimensions of materiality. So any process or any figure that serves to reconcile the figure of a circle with the figure of a square, we understand to be symbolic of the same idea of, of non-materiality coming together with materiality. And on the Gobekli Tepe pillars, we have examples of what many people um, see a resemblance to um, three handbag shapes. But, but in figure, these, these shapes actually combine a squared base with a rounded uh, top, co comparable to a handbag with a rounded handle. And from my perspective, symbolically, they again represent the concept of non-materiality coming together with materiality. On that pillar, we, we see three examples of those shapes, essentially three arches um, defined by these figures. And in following eras in the, in the Fertile Crescent region, in the region of Iraq, three hemispheres or three domes were an icon for a sanctuary. There were sanctuaries called chaityas that were defined by um, three domes or three archways. So again, we have a symbol that inherently represents the idea of non-materiality and materiality coming together. We find another symbol at Gobekli Tepe that looks like the letter H in the English language. It's two vertical posts with a crossbar. And that figure survived into the modern day with the Masonic tradition. Um, I uncovered an article in a Masonic magazine called the New Age magazine from around the, uh, the year 1900. And the article was entirely dedicated to the symbolism of that shape. And in the Masonic tradition, it's understood to represent the concept of non-material and material energies coming together. The same configuration relates to the body segments of a dung beetle in Egypt. The dung beetle, the name of the dung beetle was Keper, and Keper's symbolism is that of non-existence coming into existence. Also in ancient Egypt, the earliest form of shrine, portable shrine, that was um, defined in the ancient Egyptian culture was a shrine called a seh, S-E-H. And the shrine was built out of wicker, and was configured just like those handbag shapes. It had a curved um, a covering arch, and it had a squared base. And that sa form is understood by traditional um, researchers, traditional academics, as being 
one of the root forms of later temples and shrines in ancient Egypt. It, it defined many of the concepts. Uh, that goes along with the portable shrine in Japan that these figures of the hugging Ganeshas were only allowed to be housed in portable shrines. Uh, portable so that they could be moved on a moment's notice because it was such a, um, a secretive um, concept. There's a site in Japan called Kangoin, located not far from Tokyo, that was dedicated to this concept of the hugging Kanjiten, the hugging Ganeshas, uh, and where the shrines are shaped, uh, take, often take that same, the internal shrines of the temple often take that same shape. So at Gobekli Tepe, we have um, repeated symbolism again and again to the same concept. We have every reason to think that the, the Alat Ra symbol represents that same concept. Now, there's a third perspective to understand the Alat Ra symbol, and that relates to Buddhism. In Buddhism, Buddhism, the first exercise that a Buddhist initiate learns is a set of geometry that's used to align ritual shrines to the cardinal points of north, south, east, and west. Um, the, the geometry um, has a few steps to it. I'll try to describe as simply as I can what those steps are. The first step is to place a stick vertically in a field, an empty field, and draw a circle around that stick. So the stick becomes effectively the gnomon of a sundial. Um, the initiate is taught to, er, to mark the two longest shadows of the day cast by that stick at the points where they cross the circle. This would be the, the earliest morning shadow and the latest evening shadow to mark those shadows at the point where they cross the circle. Now, because the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, those points always fall in alignment, and in east-west alignment, automatically fall. They define a line if you connect them that is an east-west aligned line. That dynamic of, of geometry and that uh, it effectively creates a sundial, which is a tool for us to measure linear time in a material framework. It, it essentially the effect of a clock, uh, an old style analog clock, where the, the hands of the clock are the shadows of the stick. That's linear time that relates to materiality. Now, if the initiate were to rise every morning and mark those same points on the circle in relation to that day's sunrise, they would notice over the course of time that the line they create slowly moves, progressively moves northward until it reaches the solstice. It moves back southward again, it passes through the stick on the equinox and continues southward again until it reaches the next solstice. That dynamic of geometry replicates an oscillation of time that we understand from ancient references is how time is experienced non-materially. 
And so the, the geometry itself, the, the alignment geometry for that, um, for that shrine reconciles non-material concepts of time with material concepts of time. The point that comes to be of significance, the point where those two, two um, aspects of time come into um, reconciliation with each other is at the point of the equinox when the oscillating line passes through the stick of the circle. That's the point that is represented by the Alat Ra symbol, and I'll try to illustrate how that's true. Our first ancient illustration of that concept in a way that we can understand intuitively happens at around 3200 BC on Orkney Island in Northern Scotland. Um, we have a group of megalithic structures created on Orkney Island, the, fir the first megalithic structures in the United Kingdom, several hundred years before the first megalithic structures in, in Egypt. And those structures were deliberately situated in view of two mountains. And the mountains give the appearance of two reclining elephants, and they define a, a valley or a gap between the mountains that um, is significant because there's a, a pillar set in place um, in alignment with that gap. That gap is the spot where on the equinox, we see the sun set squarely between the two mountains. And throughout the remainder of the year, we can observe the sun, the motion of the sun move progressively northward and progressively southward against the backdrop of those mountains. That was a technique that was used by many ancient cultures. We even see it at Gobekli Tepe. It's a technique of agriculture. It's used to define, um, to help give visibility to um, the proper times to plant seeds and the proper times to harvest. It's a calendar. So the Aladrat symbol is a stylized way of representing that same idea, the idea of the sun setting in that gap between those two mountains. We see the very same concept represented in ancient Egypt with the figure of the glyph. The Akhet glyph is explicitly the image of a sun setting between two mountains. In the phonetics of the, of the cosmology, Ak is a term for light and Het is a term for shrine, as light shrine or sun shrine. Uh, this is the concept that's trying to be represented. So we have many, many different ways of sorting out what the symbolism of of the uh, Alat Ra glyph is, um, the symbolism of, of this relationship between non-materiality and materiality, the energetic relationship is absolutely central to the symbolism of the ancient tradition. And the Alat Ra symbol is an expression of that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> So you, you've touched upon uh, the Alatra sign in the Egyptian culture. So uh, uh, we can see it uh, in many places. We can see it in, uh, can see it on the headdresses of the goddess uh, Isis and uh, Hathor. We could, we could also see it as uh, you already mentioned the arch with the sun disk inside. 
Um, also, the scarab is a symbolic designation of the Alatra sign. Thank you for the pictures. And uh, could you please uh, tell us maybe in more detail how you understand the meaning of uh, this sign in the Egyptian culture? Ancient Egypt is one of the traditions that immediately follows what I see as an era of instruction on Orkney Island. The Orkney tradition uh, extends from around 3200 BC to around 2600 BC. And in the immediate, uh, the Dogen perspective is that eight initiate students from any given culture were taken away to a remote site, which I take to be Orkney, and given instruction in a civilizing plan for humanity, expressed in terms of a symbolic cosmology and with focus on skills of agriculture. The ancient Egyptian culture is one of at least four um, agriculturally based kingships that emerge in the immediately following era. And in each of these cultures, we see abiding nostalgia for structures and ideas and actions we see that originally play out on Orkney. In Egypt, we see it first at Abydos in the first dynasty of Egypt. We find the establishment of a cemetery at Abydos positioned in view of two remarkably similar mountains that form a very similar gap called Pega the Gap. The ancient word for Abydos was Abdu. The ancient name was Abdu. And according to Om Seti, who um, is an authority on Abydos, was an authority on Abydos, the word Abdu meant the desired mountain. So the name of the site tells us that it was selected because of the, the mountains. We also see that the first burial chambers in that cemetery took the same form, architectural form, as the original houses at the Scarabray village on Orkney. This was the interpreted to be the first farming village in the United Kingdom, but it's eight, chambered, eight, eight chambers or eight houses. It looks to me as if it represented essentially student housing for the initiates who were being instructed in the tradition. So, Abydos, the setting of Abydos, deliberately recreates through geography that symbol of the um, Alad Ra symbol, the symbol of the Aket. 1,500 years later, when the ancient uh, Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten relocated his capital, Akhenaten was trying to um, harken back to the original roots of the Egyptian religion. He situated his new capital, Akhetaten, in similar view of two mountains where the gap defined the rising sun every morning. And he set a pillar similar to the watchstone pillar on Orkney that was a spot to view the risings and settings from. It's the same symbolism. And it's the same concept of trying to reconcile two modes of time. It's trying to reconcile linear time that is experienced materially with non-linear time, an oscillation of time that is experienced uh, non-materially. Now, there's a reason for that. I'll try to explain in terms of the energy dynamics why time behaves that way. 
the way the energy begins, I said it begins with two energies, non-material, material energies coming together. And the action of those energies is, is essentially the same as what we see with ripples that emanate and dissipate on the surface of water. These are virtual particles for, um, for science, which are fluctuations of energy that seem to emanate and then dissipate um, without actual coherent form. But those, those ripples of energy under the right circumstances begin to spin. And that spinning is the oscillation of energy that, an oscillation of time that non-materiality experiences. The spinning energy creates resonance and resistance. And in order to relieve the resistance that builds up, periodically the energy emits a vector that, that extends perpendicularly to it extends perpendicularly to the, the plane of the spinning energy. But depending on how much resistance, the, the vectors uh, fan out. There are seven vectors that move uh, progressively toward vertical and then away from vertical the same way the solstices do. And the, that vector of energy, the, the central one, the one that comes out of the center of the spinning energy, that faces the least amount of res resistance is the one that defines our linear vector of time. So they're using geography to replicate that idea, to illustrate that idea, to give visibility to that idea. And they associate non-material time with seasonality, and they associate material time with daylight time that we experience. Um, in ancient Egypt, uh, the concept of the Akat, the Akat was treated as a kind of a gateway. Um, Pega the Gap, the gap between the mountains at Abatos, was seen as a gateway that the soul of a deceased person would pass through on its way to a second gateway situated far to the west. At, in the second era or the field of reeds that the ancient Egyptians defined. My perspective is that virtually all of the symbolism of the second era in Egypt, which corresponds to symbolism about the Elysian fields in later Greek culture, all of, those, all of that symbolism plays out on two levels at the same time. The Dogen have a similar concept that also plays out on two levels at the same time. From one perspective, they're talking about a cosmological concept. And on the other perspective, from the other perspective, it relates to a, an actual geographic place that a person can go to and where actual actions are undertaken. Um, so the Egyptians understand the concept in very much the same way that the Dogen do and in very much the same way the ancient Greeks do, and in very much the same way that we see it play out on Orkney. This is all one set of concepts um, reflected in remarkably similar ways in many different ancient cultures, but with different emphasis in different cultures. So, Lert, uh, could you please uh, tell us uh, the meaning of the word a lot in uh, the languages you study? Okay. Um, The first thing we need to understand is that if we can 
trace our way back to the original word or the original term that defined a concept in any of these ancient cultures, the phonetics of the word flatly tell us what was intended to be symbolized. There is no attempt to hide what's being symbolized. In fact, there, someone is bending over backwards to flatly tell us what they're trying to symbolize. Now, in order to get at that, we have two problems. First off, we, we need to get, we need to understand the, what the original phonetics of the language represented. And that's one of the, the factors that the Dogen culture provides for us. The Dogen society is dedicated as a culture to preserving original forms of the tradition. And one of the things they preserve are the original phonetics of this cosmological language. In that language, every syllable relates to, corresponds to what I call a root concept. In other words, the syllables behave like symbols. That if we say Ra, we're referring to the sun and dynamics that relate to the sun, such as the orbit of the earth around the sun, or the concept of a day, the rotation of the earth on its axis. Any dynamic of energy that involves spinning around a center has potential connection to the, the syllable ra. The, the syllable C, si, relates to the dynamic of the stars of Sirius. The dynamic of the stars of Sirius, okay, there are two stars, two main stars in the Sirius system, and the Dogen described them. One is a bright sun-like star, like our sun. The other is a very small, dark, dense, dwarf star that um, is in a binary pairing with with Sirius. And the action of those two stars, as they move around each other and as they move through space, recreates the dynamic of that initial, uh, that initial, what can I say, initials coming together of energies, uh, non-material and material energies. It's a dynamic called angular impulse. It creates a shape, an almond-like shape, and that almond-like shape ends up creating the center point for the spinning energy. Um, to get to the meaning of the, of the word alatra, we have to get back to original terms and the original meanings of terms. We can see that becomes, because the word alatra includes the word ra, that it pro- its symbolism probably relates to this concept of the sun in, in Egypt. The name Alat-Ra relates to an Egyptian term that means, I'm sorry, to a Dogen term uh, that means to prepare or to configure. Uh, in the mindset of this energy, what's happening is the non-material energy creates a scroll on the non-material side that passes through a gateway which is the shape of the vesica Pisces, is that almond shape that's created by virtual particles. And inside that, that almond shape, it becomes configured in certain ways that prepare the evocation of material forms. Um, we know what way it's configured because there are certain ways that... Uh, these energies relate to electricity and magnetism. And electromagnetism, when it encounters a surface, the uh, interface between 
non-materiality and materiality compares to the surface of water. And when electromagnetism encounters a surface, it configures itself in particular ways. And so the term alatra relates back for me to that Dogen word, which means to prepare or to configure, which is one of the essential actions that happens in the space that's defined symbolically by the gap between the mountains where that sun sits. Um, that, that, that's a difficult explanation, but that's the, the best way I can explain uh, the term. Now we see phonetic similarity to the ancient term Ararat. Gobekli Tepe is situated in a region of southeastern Turkey that is quite near the mountain of Ararat. From Gobekli Tepe, you can observe the sun's motions against the backdrop of mountains in the directions of Ararat. So we can imagine that the naming of Ararat evolved from the same symbolism. It's the same, the same set of concepts being uh, given vis visibility in relation to the same phonetic. That's uh, the best linguistic take I have on um, how the, the term uh, Alatra was arrived at. In, in the Islam, the name of the creator god Allah um, relates to all these same concepts of creation. And in Islam, they aligned ritual shrines using the same geometry as the Buddhists use. So we can imagine that the word Allah derives from the same phonetics as the term Alatra. It's through cross comparison to these various ancient cultures that we're able to triangulate on what the likeliest original meaning was for any given word or any given symbol. And we have certain tools that help us do that. One are the defined phonetics of the Dogen language. We, if, we, if we are uncertain what a, a syllable represents, we can go to the Dogen language and see what concepts they associate with it. We have an exceptional advantage with the Egyptian hieroglyphic language because every Egyptian glyph also corresponds to a concept. Now, this, this is not an outlook that has been embraced by Egyptologists, but I can explain it intuitive to, intuitively to you uh, in a couple of ways. Most languages, most written languages, are only trying to represent phonetic values, a set of approximately 40 phonetic values. In the ancient Egyptian written language, the hieroglyphic language, they represent 4,000, more than 4,000 Egyptian glyphs. In other words, nearly 100 glyphs for every phonetic value. There's no sensible reason if it were primarily a phonetic language to have that many glyphs. We also have direct comparability on how certain words were formulated between the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs and the ancient Chinese hieroglyphs. Well, in ancient China, it's, it's broadly understood that every glyph represented a concept. The way you read a Chinese hieroglyphic word is you substitute concepts for glyphs and you produce an idea that is represented by the word. Well, that's the approach I use in reading ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. And I support it or arrived at that because we have a, a subset of about 30 Egyptian glyphs 
that correspond to Dogen cosmological drawings. We know what the symbolism of the Dogen drawing is, and we know what certain researchers felt the symbolism of the glyphs were, and they match each other. So we can use those glyphs to understand that every Egyptian word flatly tells us its own meaning. The most, again, the most intuitive example is a word for the concept of a week. A week we celebrate or we observe a week of seven days. The Egyptian word for week is a very simple word. It combines only two glyphs. The first is the sun glyph, which is a circle with a dot. That represents the concept of a day. The second is an upside down U in English. There is the Egyptian number 10. So I look at the Egyptian word for week, and I see that symbolically it represents the concept of 10 days. I then did some research and discovered the ancient Egyptian language or the ancient Egyptian culture observed the 10 day week. So I actually experienced attaining a new piece of correct knowledge about Egyptian culture simply by the form of the Egyptian word. The word relayed to me truthful information about the meaning of the word and about the culture through the symbols. When we go to ancient Chinese hieroglyphic language, their concept for a week was represented by a sun glyph that was originally round with a dot in the middle of it and their number 10, and they also celebrate a 10-day week. So at this level of understanding, we have direct comparability in formulation and expression between the original hieroglyphic language in Egypt and the original hieroglyphic language in China based on the same symbols. So if we're in doubt about the meaning of any concept or any word, the first place I look is to an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary to see how the idea was expressed in their words, because whoever wrote the word is trying to explain to me the nuances of meaning that they associate with the word. So I read that word, I substitute concepts for symbols, I get an idea of what the word represents, and then I pursue that same concept or that same word with the other ancient traditions and verify to my satisfaction that other cultures understood the concept in the same way. And through that process, I arrive at a much more nuanced understanding of what the term originally must have meant. That's one of my key processes in sorting out symbolism. So in trying to understand the Alat Ra symbol, one approach a person might take is starting with the equivalent Egyptian glyph, the Akhet glyph, and looking at Egyptian words that relate to Akhet and trying to sort out from those meanings what was being represented. Um, we had talked about the dynamic across the boundary from non-materiality to materiality expressing itself in a one to seven relationship that what appears as a single thing on the non-material side expresses itself as a multiple, mul multiple things on the, on the material side. The same is true with these concepts that relate to these symbols. That every cosmological term and every cosmological symbol doesn't carry just a single meaning, it carries a cluster of meanings. And those, those clustered meanings, at first, at first glance, they seem disconnected from each other. They're disconnected from each other in such a way that simply knowing the first meaning doesn't 
doesn't reasonably allow us to guess the secondary meaning, that the name of the Dogen uh, creator god, Ama, can also mean to grasp or to hold firm or to establish. The equivalent word amen in Egypt means to grasp or to hold firm or to establish. The word amen in Hebrew language means comes from a root that means to establish. These clusters of meanings provide us with a way of positively correlating words between languages outside of the context of traditional etymology. What we're saying is we have a set, a cluster of unique elements that associate with the word in one language, and we find that same cluster of unique elements associated with a second word in a second language that has similar phonetics. That puts me in a position to claim, without regard to etymology, that the two words correlate to each other. They're part of the same system, they're the same word. So in trying to research the meaning of the word alat ra, that's part of what I went through. That's the process I went through was I, I, I can trace the meanings of the alat ra symbol and understand what it means. I can trace the meanings of the phonetics of the word alat ra and understand what each of those syllables represent. And by combining all of that with the views of various cultures, I can arrive at uh, an overview or a concept of what, what the entire meaning must have been. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Uh, to summarize what you just said, uh, so we can say that Alatra sign and uh, the meaning of Alatra world, uh, it was very important sign and uh, yeah, understanding in many cultures. And um, uh, we can also say that there are many, many clusters of meaning, uh, as you just said, and both symbolic and related to the physics of this world, uh, right? Right. It is. It reflects a core concept of the, that dynamic of energy by which processes of creation happen. It represents the center point of the spinning energy, which is also in many cultures, the domain of the concept of deity. In Buddhism, the concept of deity begins with a word called datu. And datu in Buddhism originally represented the one structure in this entire continuum process that doesn't change. It's not subject to change. And so it comes to be associated with the concept of deity because, or the concept of gods, because gods are treated as a, a, a stabilizing a con a set of concepts that don't ever change. These are, these are the ground, the base rules that define the concepts of physics. We see in Dogen culture that those concepts are represented scientifically. There's no, uh, there's very little attempt in Dogen culture to anthropomorphize um, those concepts. Very often we can take a Dogen definition and substitute it for a scientific definition and not change the meaning of the scientific definition. We can take the Dogen drawing and substitute it for the scientific diagram and not change the meaning of the scientific article. For the Dogen, it's science. For other cultures over time, that science was anthropomorphized in various ways that play out um, in, in several different forms. We see associations originally to animals and symbolism. We eventually see animals become avatars of deities um, in places like India. 
we see in Egypt um, an anthropomorphized figure with an animal's head representing a concept. Um, by the time we get to ancient Greek, we have so fully anthropomorphized the concept of a, of a deity that we now have um, storylines being written about the interactions between the gods that, that play out more like um, soap operas in the modern uh, era. Um, originally, these myths had were combined scientific concepts and, and scientific dynamics. Wow, thank you, Larry. Thank you. It's really um, interesting to um, see how um, ancients, uh, they had this uh, science script and uh, they intended to uh, pass the whole meaning, not just uh, like we uh, write with letters, you know, which is very limited actually and uh, subject to a different, of course, uh, interpretation. So um, I also, uh, we, we mentioned uh, briefly uh when when you talked actually about the uh time and uh, date like the year and you know there is um, a definition of the allot uh, time unit and here i will uh, permit myself to read an excerpt from uh, uh, the book alatra so in uh, the scientific meaning a lot is an integral time unit that has an enormous meaning for the whole material world if to take the modern description of Earth time, a lot consists of 12 minutes. To be more precise, 11 minutes, 56.74 seconds. When scientists will discover the meaning of this important part of the foundation, so to say, the main building block of the macrocosm, it will be not just a great revolution in science, it will be a real evolutionary leap forward. And uh, we talked previously with you uh, about that you found a diff uh, like an interesting uh, notion about this um, 12 minutes or uh, in the sidereal uh, time uh, concept. Can you please expand on this a little bit? Yes. We understand that the dynamics of energy that we're talking about from the Dogen perspective and the, from the perspective of a philosophy of India, India called Samkhya, we're talking about a cycle of energy. We're talking about an oscillation of energy that is the root dynamic of energy across the universe at all in all domains. So the concept relates to the Buddhist or the Indian co concept of the Yuga cycle. Um, and the significant point, okay, for those who are not familiar with the concept of the Yuga cycle, the idea is that over long periods of time, over a period of about 26,000 years, that humanity goes through stages where it's more intimately able to perceive things non-material and less intimately able to perceive them. Um, energetically, that concept is also expressed symbolically in relation to the concept of the great year. Um, they try to relate that to our understanding of the cycle of the normal cycle of a year that comes around and goes around again and again. With the ancient cultures, one of the very significant points, among the very significant points celebrated in the annual year were the solstices, when key, uh, the, let's say the equinoxes, when key, key um, ancient holidays were often celebrated, and the solstices when more recently, certain um, holidays were celebrated. 
Um, I've talked about Kepper, the dung beetle, representing the notion of non-existence coming into existence. The ancient Egyptian word for equinox was Kepper. Um, energetically, that relates to the point of least resistance in those vectors that translate from the spinning energy to our linear arrow of time. Your value that associates with the Alatra symbol of 11 minutes 56.74 seconds relates on a on by a factor of of scale to half the value of what's called the sidereal year of the earth the sidereal year of the earth that the concept of the sidereal year is that if you were to note the Earth's position in relation to a specific star, and then count the number of days until the Earth rotates, uh, revolves back around through its yearly cycle back to that same uh, point, you would have um, the value of a sidereal year, which is about four days shorter than the 365-day year that we that we observe. There's also a concept of a sidereal day, which is doing the same thing only with the daily rotation of the Earth in, in relation to a specific star. The sidereal day is slightly shorter than the 24-hour day that we observe on our clocks. It's only 23 hours and a fraction of minutes and seconds. Half of that sidereal day value corresponds to your 11 it would be 11 hours, 56 minutes, and 74 seconds in terms of a day. In terms of a sidereal year, the equinox is the point at which, the equinox of the sidereal year is the point at which the Earth moves conceptually above the, the celestial plane that defines our orbit around the, the sun. It's when it moves either from south to north or north to south. In other words, it's when the Earth passes that same midpoint that the Aladra symbol represents. Your value corresponds to that if we're talking about a sidereal year. Now, that equinox point was important in, in numerous ways to ancient cultures. Um, through the concept of Kepper, we understand that it relates to the idea of the ideas of the energies, uh, non-material and material energies coming together. It also relates to the equinox point in the in in the autumn when Sirius and the Sun come together for the Dogma. This is the heliacal rising of Sirius. What happens with Sirius is that from our perspective, because of where our sun's position, there are a number of days where we can't see Sirius because it sits in the bright glare of our sun. After 70 some days, Sirius reappears again. It reappears just before the rising sun of the dawn. And that date falls at the, the same, approximately the same date as this um, equinox, autumn equinox corresponding to that equinox of the sidereal year. 
It's the point where Sirius and the sun are in closest proximity to each other. So symbolically, since Sirius is an icon for non-materiality and the sun is an icon for materiality, it becomes highly significant to the ancient cultures because it's non-material and material energies coming together. This is the, the starting point for creation. Astronomically, modern astronomers take that point as the beginning. They assign that point as the beginning of the new sidereal year. In ancient cultures, they marked that point as the beginning of their solar year. In Egypt, it was the beginning of the solar year. In the, the Dogen calendar, it's the beginning of the solar year. Um, in many, many other ancient cultures, you find the same thing, that the heliacal rising of Sirius, that point, which is the beginning of the sidereal year, becomes the beginning of their solar year. So we can see that measures of time that relate to the calendar in these ancient cultures were, were founded on someone's knowledge of the dynamics of astronomy. It can't be a coincidence that all of these circumstances come together at that point and that the ancients, so many different ancient cultures just coincidentally chose that as the beginning of their year. It, it's the sensible representation of the beginning of their year and it directly relates to the Alatra symbol. Oh, this is awesome. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. And, you know, actually, we um, had some uh, experiments done with uh, the influence of the Alatra sign on different things. So, as I mentioned uh, during our pre-call, uh, we uh, we did some uh, road safety experiments where we um, put the Alatra sign, like the, um, not not the, uh, what you see on our, uh, like, um, uh, website where it is uh, black lines on the white background but uh, the inverse where we have the white lines on the black background and um, we put these like big city lights uh, near like facing both sides of the road uh, near the uh, unlucky um, uh, places where a lot of accidents happened and uh, we observed the statistics and they really diminished a lot almost completely and also uh, there was um, there were several experiments with the uh, taxi companies that uh, had put bumper stickers with the same uh, white uh, lines symbol on black background and they had accidents reduced to zero by the fault of their drivers uh, over the period of um, several times and actually it's very very interesting but then there was another because here, maybe you can say, okay, this is something uh, measurable, but uh, still, we had uh, we have gone to uh, measure the influence on blood of real living human beings. So we uh, had them look, uh, observe uh, the uh, uh, the same Alatra sign on black background, and you can see on the screen right now, dear viewers, what happened to the platelets, uh, the uh, how uh, this uh, Alatra sign influences the blood. I mean, it structures the blood completely. Uh, like even people who had uh, we we've seen uh, arriving with um, some pretty um, bad condition of the blood. Uh, really, everything changed after looking at the symbol for 
24 minutes, which is too a lot <laughs> time units, which we just <clears throat> mentioned previously. Right. Do you have any explanation as to how this can work, why these uh, things might even manifest in this universe, uh, given that we are just putting a sign uh, and make people look at it? Yes. Uh, first, can you tell me, are your figures on the black background um, filled in with white, or is it just the lines that are white? Is uh, the center of the figures black, or are they white? Uh, the center, uh, the center is also black. I mean, Im imagine uh, maybe we can uh, show it again uh, uh, on the screen so that you can uh, have it uh, handy. Uh, it's really like black background, completely black, and just uh, the uh, circle. Yes, yes, the circle. Yeah, yes. yeah. Okay, and uh, yes. and the. Uh, uh, Demi, Demi Lune, if you want, uh, yeah. Okay, um, to understand how that might be possible, we need to begin with the root philosophy of this tradition, which is our first expression of it is to the cosmological philosophy of Samkhya, S-A-M-K-H-Y-A, of India. Samkhya, it's all of the same concepts. Yoga is a personalized or a biological expression of the same cosmological concepts that Samkhya expresses. From the Dogen perspective, there's parallelism between the processes, the energetic processes that create biology, biological life, that create consciousness, that create matter, and that create the universe. The, there is a single set of dynamics of energy that all are responsible for those effects. And so there's parallelism between uh, terminology and symbology and so forth. In fact, whoever designed the symbolic system, through my point of view, they were they were showing off just a little bit. They were maybe trying trying <laughs> trying to show off just a little bit in that they simultaneously describe all three themes of creation using a single progression of symbols that underscores the parallelism of the concepts that every symbol has meaning whether we're talking comparable meaning whether we're talking about the formation of biological life or whether we're talking about the formation of matter or formation of the universe now samkhya says that the non-material domain has perfect consciousness but an inability to take action. And that the material universe has imperfect knowledge with full ability to take action. And so consequently, Samkhya believes that there are routine attempts being made from the non-material side to communicate knowledge to the material side or to induce actions on the material side. And those attempts take many different forms. Uh, the ones we're most familiar with are um, the idea of um, meaningful synchronicities. Uh, we've all experienced these. Um, some of us assign meaning to them, some of us don't. Samkhya says this happens through the, the action of vivid dreams. Many of us can remember our vivid dreams, some of us can't. Many of us assign meaning to them, some of us don't. Um, another mode of communicating it is through the unusual behavior of animals, through divination, such as 
the I Ching, I Ching or other methods of divination that cultures, ancient cultures have used through clairvoyance, through the use of hallucinogenic drugs by shaman to channel information and through any of the paranormal processes by which we we understand that people can gain knowledge. Um, uh, intuitive healers very often will use the same dynamic that I associate with an initiate in the a Dogen initiate to this tradition in that they'll pose a question to a non-material source. And if the question is appropriate to their their own personal understanding, their own personal authority to the, this knowledge, they'll receive a correct answer to their question. So the Alat Ra symbol um, represents a point of least resistance to that energy. It, it, it's a representation of the point of least resistance to that energy. It's understood in Samkhya that simply by paying attention to these types of communication, simply by allowing the possibility in our own minds that there's meaning behind these circumstances, we foster that communication to ourselves. Um, the comparison I can give you is to the person who's in a foreign country who attends a party. And most of the people at the party don't speak their language. But midway through the party, they come to understand that there's a person over in, sitting over in the corner who speaks a dialect that's similar to the dialect, the language that they know from their home country. The chances are very good that that person will spend the rest of the evening trying to communicate with the one person they know they can talk to. Same thing happens in a hospital. If a person, a patient, finds one medical worker who, who has any kind of facility with their language, they'll speak to try to speak to that person, that nurse or that doctor. The same is true for non-materiality, according to Samkhya, that once it understands that there's someone, there's a consciousness on the material side, an individual consciousness that's trying to pay attention to these communications, there's an, an uptick in that the attempts to communicate with that person. There's more of an effort made to try to communicate. And so I can see the potential that placing your Aladrath symbol in certain places indicates an intention to communicate. It, it demonstrates an intention to communicate. And that non-material might be drawn, non-materiality, non-material consciousness might be drawn to that statement of intention to communicate. There are other, other modes of doing that in ancient um, cultures. The, the ancient Egyptians um, and the Dogen um, felt that you could effectively call non-materiality to yourself by lightly tapping your thigh with your hand, the way you would call a dog to yourself. So there are perspectives from which there might be a scientific basis, an energetic basis for what you for, for what you say happens happening. And your ability to document it, the more you're able to document a statistical likelihood that something is happening, the more a traditional researcher is going to have reason to consider what you're saying. 
Yes, this is interesting. Thank you. And you know, actually, in um, your book, you mentioned the uh, Togon myth of uh, the um, Dada spider and give an example of a Dogon uh, drawing on a field before sowing. So the drawing looks a little bit like a Chladni figure. And uh, maybe um, you can tell us a little bit uh, more about uh, its meaning to the Dogon people and uh, how do they explain this drawing and uh, maybe the application of this drawing to the field uh, somehow um, is related to what we have seen in these experiments with the Alatra sign. Um, Stephen Hawking says, when he's speaking about um, particles of matter, there are several classes of particles of matter. And when you get down to the lowest class, which he refers to as fundamental particles, he says there are more than 200 fundamental particles. He says, we're not sure how many more, but we know there are more than 200 fundamental particles. The Dogans say there are 266 fundamental particles of matter. And both Stephen Hawking and the Dogan relate these particles of matter to different vibrational frequencies of energy. So every year, at the time of the sowing of the seeds, the Dogen will gather at the agricultural field of their highest priest, who is known as the Aru priest, A-R-O-U. And they will create this drawing, this field drawing in their field, a circle that they fill with zigzag lines that are meant to represent some of these vibrations of fundamental particles. And each year, they draw a different pattern so that over a series of years, they eventually have described all 266 um, uh, patterns of energy that define these fundamental particles. So that's what the, the figure relates to. It compares conceptually to the idea of a crop circle in our experience the idea of figures being represented in the field energetically to try to um or to try to try to express concepts of energy or other or other concepts um it also relates to the figure itself also relates to the egyptian sun glyph figure in and the alignment geometry of the of the buddhist stupa shrine because of the shape it takes with a, a circle around a central point um, it just they've defined more detail inside the inside the circle. Awesome, awesome. Thank you very much. And I think actually, since you mentioned the uh, stupas, it's a great segue to the our next um, kaleidoscope effects, which is pyramids. And I would like to ask Polina to uh, uh, present this project and ask uh, her question. Yes. Yes. Uh, our next uh, kaleidoscope will be dedicated to pyramids, and now we are studying and discovering uh, pyramids around the world. They're spreading uh, their meaning, their purpose, and symbolism of pyramids. And uh, as far as you are, uh, and I, guess I can say specialist on sim in symbolism, of um, uh, just in symbolism, let's say, and also in linguist. I would like to ask you, uh, could you please uh, uh, share your understanding? Why do we see pyramids all over the world? Why are they so widespread around the world? Academics 
question whether the pyramids are related to each other. Academics understand that any culture whose primary building material is stones is eventually going to think to stack those stones up in the shape of a pyramid. There are only so many things you can do with stones and architecture. So academics tend to see pyramids as examples of parallel development where through the natural development of any culture, they're going to think to build a pyramid. From my perspective, we know that's not true and we can demonstrate that it's not true. And the reason we can demonstrate, the way we can demonstrate that it's not true is that all around the world, pyramid structures are associated with very non-intuitive symbolism. That in culture after culture, the form of the symbolism is, is related to the concept of the womb of a woman who is lying on her back, the expanded womb of a woman. There is no um, intuitive reason why every culture would, would think that. Now there's additional symbolism that associates with the pyramid. The four faces the, of the pyramid are quite often associated with constellations or star groups whose risings and settings regulate the agricultural cycle. Depending on the latitude or the, um, the, or the, um, Face the what, what can I say the the hemisphere of the world in which um, it was built, those pyramids relate to star groups that were visible from that hemisphere or from from that latitude. Um, again, there's no objective reason to think that a culture going through its natural processes of evolution would think to associate those faces with that those with those kinds of star groups. So the symbolism insists that they were responding to a, a, a common influence, a common source of knowledge, a common framework of outlook. From my point of view, a common system of instruction. Um, now, discussion of why they were being built is a more complicated issue and there are open aspects to that question. Um, we can see that there are energetic properties very often associated with these pyramids, which implies that they had energetic functions. And there are many different theories as to what those energetic functions might have been, but we don't have a consensus outlook even from the, from the ancient uh, tradition as to what those energetic functions might have been. The fact that very many of these pyramid structures are situated along a single pathway around the, the planet. You can essentially draw a line that, uh, around the planet that connects these major sites where the pyramids are, implies that there could have been a relationship. If we imagine that the tilt of the axis of the earth has not always been what it is, and there are reasons to think that it's changed, that at the time the pyramids were built, there may have been an energetic need to place them in certain relationship to the magnetic pole because of certain energetic effects. And so that's one possibility that the placement of them in a line originally um, um, equidistant from a mag the, the geographic or magnetic poles of the planet might now express itself as a tilted line because the tilt of the axis of the earth changed. 
That's one outlook on it. Um, that leads us into other questions, but I don't want to anticipate what your next question is, so I'll let you let you pose it. Yeah, so the next question also, sorry, Polina. So the next question also relates to pyramids and that's about um, the sacred geometry. So is this something that you could also uh, <clears throat> touch upon and share your ideas about this point? Yes, and ac actually I can connect it back to the concept of pyramids also. In sim, okay. Anytime we want to understand the meaning of a symbol or a process or a ritual, it's much easier to do that if we can arrive at the original expression of that process, the original form it took, the original word that expressed it, the original way it was carried out. Well, the simplest, earliest form of sacred geometry that we see is the same geometry I was talking about that's used to align a Buddhist stupa shrine. Now in Buddhism, a stupa shrine is understood to be a symbolic, it's a grand symbol of a Buddhism, a grand symbol of the Buddhist cosmology. Technically, a stupa shrine is not allowed to have a practical purpose, to underscore the idea that it is symbolic and to, to make us consider it in symbolic terms, not in practical terms. However, we have another effect that's happening with symbolism across the, okay, we were talking about a 26,000 year yuga cycle. And of that, what concerns us is the half cycle, just as we're concerned about the half cycle of the sidereal year. The, um, during the half cycle of that energy, the material universe is becoming progressively more and more material and as there's more and more mass there's a scientifically there's a transition from energy to mass that happens they uh the rate at which we see the universe expanding has direct relationship to the rate at which energy uh the ratio of mass to energy that during the same period of time that the volume of the universe doubles the ratio of mass energy doubles. So during the half cycle of the yuga for the, for the material side, mass is increasing. And at the same time for the non-material side, it's decreasing. These half cycles are what we're concerned about. That's approximately a 13,000, 12 to 13,000 year half cycle. Okay, if we imagine mass increasing on one side and decreasing on the other side midway through that half cycle what used to be the non the less material universe suddenly becomes the more material universe and vice versa what had been the more material universe becomes the less material universe and so symbolism that was appropriate to our domain in the early portions of this 13,000 year period was non-material symbology and so we had circles associated with the, the earth. We had the earliest houses and structures built in with circular bases. Um, and when you pass the midpoint of that cycle, okay, you, also in that archaic era, we had femininity, which is associated with non-materiality. We saw the celebration of goddesses and matriarchal traditions. 
um, midway through the cycle, suddenly we see that flip across cultures across the planet, cultures who had no connection to each other, suddenly stop celebrating goddesses or feminine energy and start celebrating gods. It goes from a feminine tradition to a masculine tradition. Suddenly, instead of a circular, a, the symbol of a circle representing the earth, the symbol of a square does. And so we start to see structures with squared bases during the second half of, um, of a, what's called a descending cycle, when, the, when the, um, the, the domain is becoming more material. So the Dogen preserve a shrine that's very much like the Buddhist stupa shrine. These shrines are both evoked using the same set of geometric figures in the same sequence and with the same symbolism. They both begin with the idea of that circle around the center. The main difference between the two shrine forms is that the Dogen shrine form culminates with a round base and a squared roof. And the Buddhist stupa shrine typically culminates with a squared base and a rounded top. We can tell based on those forms that the Dogen shrine has got to be the earlier form of the shrine because in the archaic eras of the tradition, the original forms of the tradition, shrines should have had a circular base, not a squared base. So in trying to understand what the symbolic intention was behind the, the Dogen granary form, what the Dogen granary is, I, the, we have the picture of it up there. We can see it. It's a round base and a squared top. I've also said that original forms of the tradition usually include self-confirmation of meaning. That's one of the things that identifies it as being original. It's one of the ways we can judge whether there has been a change to the original form or whether we're seeing an actual original form. With the Dogen Shrine, the structure culminates with a square roof that is eight cubits per side. So mathematically, that produces 64 square, uh, 64 square cubit area as the roof of the Dogen Granary. The circular base of the granary measures 10 cubits as a radius. Mathematically, that produces a circumference of 64 cubits if we use 3.2 as an approximation of pi, of the value of pi. So in the structure, the circumference of the base has self-confirmed the measurements of the, the the dimensions of the roof. And from that, we understand that we're looking at an original form. Another thing that the form does is that it reconciles the figure of a circle with a figure of a square in the form of architecture. Now for the Dogen, the structure was not only supposed to be uh, symbolic, the description of how the structure was built insists that it has to be symbolic. It can't be an actual physical structure because there's an internal contradiction in the dimensions that are given, the instructions that are given for how to build the structure. A person can't 
um, can't physically build it. Um, and I'll try to explain what that contradiction is. The structure begins with a circle, a circular base with the center, same as the geometry for the Buddhist stupa shrine. And from that center, you measure out 10 cubits length to get to the, to plot a point that, that defines the circle, the circular base. Each face, okay, okay, that circle rises to a square roof, which creates um, the approximation of a flat face on each of the four sides of the structure. But up the center of each side is a staircase. And every step of the staircase measures one cubit high and one cubit deep. If we were try to, to try to build it to those dimensions, the staircases would meet at a peak at the top. They wouldn't meet at a square flat top. So in order to build the structure, you either have to change the radius of it, or you have to move the staircases outward from, you know, eight, uh, four cubits outward from the, the center of the structure in order to create the space to create the eight by eight um, roof. So the structure can only be a symbolic structure. Um, the structure has many things in common with the Great Pyramid in Egypt. For one thing, okay, the, the Dogen conceptualized the structure as a granary. A granary is a structure in which grain is stored after it's been harvested um, to preserve it for a long period of time. With the Dogen structure, the opening to the structure is situated two-thirds of the way up the north face of the structure. That's the same place where the actual entry to the Great Pyramid was situated, two-thirds of the way up the north side. The Greek historian Herodotus said that he was told that the symbolism of the pyramid was to a granary, that these were ancient Egyptian granaries. That no one has ever found remnants of grain inside them. But we can understand Herodotus' Herodotus's statement because of the Dogen symbolism, which is, is more ancient, that conceptually this was defined in relation to the concept of a granary. And the reason for that is because the entire symbolic system was tagged to agriculture. Part of what the teachers were trying to accomplish was to instruct us in skills of agriculture, to move us from um, a situation of being hunter-gatherers to being farmers. Uh, now, the way the Dogen use their greenery is conceptually. They use it as a, a, a visualization object to conceptualize ideas. And one of the ways they use it is um, each, I have said that each of the four faces of the structure associate with a constellation or a star group. That symbolism relates to astronomy and it relates to cosmology and it relates to agriculture. However, each of the four faces also relate to four classes of animals. One face relates to the world of insects, one to the world of fish, one to the world of mammals or four-legged animals, and one to the world of birds. The Dogen conceptualize various classes of these animals 
in relation to each of the steps up the, the side of the structure. And so um, the French anthropologist Marcel Griol, in, in discussing these concepts with the Dogen priest, the Dogen priest was describing all of the four-legged animals that stood on a certain step on conceptually on this, this step of the, the Dogen granary. And Marcel Griol, joke, he, made, he made a joke. He said, how can so many large animals fit on a one cubit step? And his, his instructor, the priest Ogotameli, who was a blind priest, responded, he said, it's a symbolic step. We can fit any number of animals we like on a symbolic step. <laughs> These are concepts. This is not real life. So the structure was being used in terms of the animal world to get a visualized concept of how to classify various phyla and classes and families of animals. To categorize them in categories by the faces of the, of the, the structure and in family groupings up the steps of the structure. They did the same thing with plants in the, in the botanical world the different categories of plants or herbs or med medical herbs or whatever, they could classify according conceptually according to these, these staircases. They could also prioritize one over the other. They could, um, by relating a particular life form to a particular step, they could spell out processes of evolution. How did, how did these uh, animal and life forms appear historically on on the earth? How did they emerge historically on the earth? So there are many advantages to using this grand um, shrine as a symbol to do that. Now, when we go back to Egypt, we're told that when Imhotep, who was the architect of the Great Pyramid, wanted to build it, a great dispute arose between two different groups of priests that were preventing him from building it. Now, the Egyptian texts don't tell us what that dispute was, but they do tell us how he resolved the dispute. He resolved the dispute by initially building a flat top pyramid comparable to the flat top granary the Dogen had. But then he took an additional step. He placed, he said what he was doing was placing on top of that flat topped granary form a an unquestionable icon of the Egyptian priesthood, the Ben-Ben stone, as a cap on top of that shrine. And that cap finished out the peaked pyramid form that we're talking about. So we can understand based on his solution that the problem the priests had relates to this same mathematical quandary with the grant the Dogen granary, that one group of priests wanted to strictly follow the directions of how to build it, which meant they had to have the flat top um, as the culmination of the shrine. The other side wanted to follow, uh, I mean, the one side wanted to follow the, the drawn images and the other one wanted to follow the directions which would have brought it to a peak. And so in Umhel Hotep had to find a compromise that would satisfy both groups of priests. He was trying to resolve that inherent contradiction in the shrine. Now there's, there's another very important reason for that contradiction in the shrine. And this comes down to concepts. We know that every religion that we're familiar with represents 
that the root dynamics of creation, the root energetics of creation are fundamentally unknowable, that humanity can't know it, that there's no point in our even trying to know it because it's inherently not graspable by human consciousness. As I was doing my comparative work here and tying it to scientific energetics of uh, dynamics of energy, it became increasingly apparent to me that what it boils down to is a handful of energetic concepts that are entirely knowable, entirely understandable. There's no mystery about it at all. Once you understand what they're talking about, it plays out in very rational form. Completely understandable if we talk about it, about it uh, conceptually rather than, than in, from any other perspective. So the, the resolution to that comes with Tibetan Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism, okay, the, the, the energetics of this system imply, and the symbolism of this system imply um, another important concept I have to talk about first. In Dogen numerology, three is the number of the male, and four is the number of the female. Seven is the number of the individual. When the Dogen talk about universes, the non-material and material domains, they tell us that four is the number of the material domain. And they stop there. They don't say any more. They say four is the number of the material domain. Well, we know that the material domain is considered to be masculine. We know that the non-material domain is considered to be feminine. So the implication that is not spoken is that three is the number of the non-material domain, and that together the three and the four constitute an individual. It turns out that the energetic dynamics that exist between non-materiality and materiality are very, very similar to the energetic dynamics of consciousness. In other words, it looks as if those universal domains constitute a primordial consciousness that none of these original traditions deify. In uh, Kabbalism, it's uh, referred to, the pri to as the primordial individual. Um, Budge, who, uh, Sir E.A. Wallace Budge, who um, developed a, uh, an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary, refers to it as the spirit body of Orion. Um, in Tibetan Buddhism, it's referred to as the mind itself the concept of the mind itself. This is consciousness as a whole. Um, public Buddhism, which is called exoteric Buddhism, represents that these concepts are not knowable. But esoteric Buddhism admits that that was a fib, that was a small lie. That in fact, these processes are entirely knowable, just as the energetics of science say they're entirely knowable. So what did these traditions mean when they said that the concept is fundamentally unknowable? Because there's ultimately truth to that idea. Well, the Tibetan tradition gives us the explanation in their concept of the mind itself, that what we're talking about in the dynamics of this tradition, the root dynamic of the energy is an oscillation in and out. It's energy that draws together to a center 
and then reverses and draws outward and then reverses again and draws back in. The problem is that the nature of human consciousness is that it can only focus on one thing at a time. And so if we imagine a famous optical illusion, the illusion, there's an illusion of flower vases whose contours, if you look at it the right way, define the images of a face, the image of a face. But if you look at it the other way, it looks like two, two vases, the whole flowers. Human consciousness is such that it can't simultaneously focus on both the face and the vase. We can't bring the, if we bring the face into focus, the vases are, are blurry, they're fuzzy. If we bring the, the vases into focus, the face is fuzzy. This is what is meant by the idea that human consciousness can't grasp this, these concepts in their entirety, not that we can't know them, that we can't simultaneously know the in and the out. We can know one and the other and how they relate to each other. We can't simultaneously know the both. The Dogen Granary enshrines that whole idea. It embodies, it gives visibility and illustration to that whole concept that here's an idea that we can express in words, but that can't be physically represented uh, through, through the auspices of material forms, we can't represent it the way that it's described. So that's one of the key concepts behind the whole pyramid tradition is the relationship to this, this shrine. Now, starting from another, looking at this from another perspective, the geometry that's used to define the shrine according to um, Buddhism replicates how space actually emerges. I had talked about the first circle of that geometry with its center stick and the two points that are marked morning and evening with the shadows of the stick. If we adopt those next two points, those two points on the, on the circumference of the circle as the centers of two more circles of slightly larger radius than the first circle, then we draw two more circles that overlap each other like this. And the shape of the overlap is the Vesica Pisces shape. That Vesica Pisces shape is, represents physically, it gives visibility to what the Dogen and the Buddhists are saying exists at every point in space and time, an overlap between the domains. We can understand that more intuitively by considering what happens at the surface of water because water in virtually every way is a, a metaphor for what happens with energy. At the surface of water, we see those same kinds of overlaps happen in the form of ripples that emerge and dissipate. Those same kinds of energetic ripples emerge and dissipate in the background energy of, of the universe and those those spaces are treated as gateways. They're spaces where the laws of physics as we understand them break down. They don't occur the same way as they do for us. A key factor that's different because those spaces have far less mass than we, we experience, they also experience a far quicker time frame than we experience. That's the space in which 
we're if we're able to induce two electrons to interact with each other inside those spaces, they become entangled. And they become entangled in a time frame that is ultra quick compared to ours. And so it looks to us as if two electrons are the same electron. There, we don't perceive any time at all in the transactions that occur between those electrons. Scientists, though, have been able to measure the, how quickly those occur and compare them to how quickly they occur between two unentangled electrons. And it, it's 10,000 times more quickly inside the entanglement domain than it is outside of the entanglement domain. We're fundamentally talking about a difference in quickness of time. So those overlaps in space are created energetically. And so the suggestion is that in the era of Orkney Island at around 3200 BC or around 3600 BC is when it starts, that era sits, historically speaking, at the midpoint of the 12,000 year half cycle that we're, we've currently just ended. So if the energy works the way the Dogen and Samkhya says it works, in that era of 3600 BC, the timeframes of the two domains should have equalized. And because the timeframes have equalized, we can consider um, comparing to the idea of differences in water pressure or air pressure, it becomes thinkable that an intelligence from the non-material side might be able to cross over that boundary between domains and take material form. Laid on all these traditions, including Kabbalism and all the traditions in India and the Dogen tradition, the Egyptian tradition and the Chinese traditions and so forth, what we infer is that there's this cycle of energy and that the function of the energy, the energy functions very much the way that water pressure functions. In that, from that perspective, we know that if we have a hollow plastic ball and we take it to the bottom of a swimming pool, that water pressure will cause that buoyant object to gravitate towards the domain of least pressure. It will rise up to the surface and stop at the point where there's no more pressure that, that forces it upward. The same is true for gravity from my perspective in the universe. That gravity represents differences in time frame between levels of mass of domains and objects. That the more you create the more massive the object is, the slower its, its time frame runs. That gravity causes objects of mass to gravitate towards the domain of slowest time frame, the same way that water pressure causes a buoyant object to gravitate to the, the domain of least pressure, water pressure. And so it's all a function, a correlate of water pressure. If we want to understand how gravity works, all we need to do is to compare it to how water pressure works. If we want to understand what happens at the domain between materiality and, and non-materiality, we have a ready-made parallel to examine. examine. We need to examine the dynamics of what happens at the surface of water because there's parallelism between the concepts. We can sort out what has to be true between the domains of energy of non-materiality and materiality by coming to a better understanding of what happens 
at the interface between air and water. So in the Orkney Island tradition, if we understand that this conceptual gateway between non-materiality and materiality is an energetic interface, it's a kind of a gateway according to what the Dogen described, it is absolutely the gateway that Ganesha, the elephant god, is said to defend or uh, to be the guardian of. That there would have been urgency as the energy change to try to keep that energetic gateway open between non-materiality and materiality. And there are reasons to think that some of the structures on Orkney Island serve that purpose. I won't go into the details of what they are, but among other things, linguistics uh, tell us that Orkney Island was rig originally seen as an island of energy. The word Orkin, the, the uh, Faroese word Orkin, O-R-K-N, means energy, and Kajarni, which is the second half of the word Orkneyar, uh, or Orkneyjar, uh, means um, um, stones. So the ancient word for energy actually meant energetic stones. The configuration of stones that we see at Stennis has absolute implications for energy, for the generation of energy. And we can imagine that in that era, it might have become necessary to keep a gateway of energy open to allow that crossover to happen. As time went on, and the energetics changed and then the material universe moved further and more, uh, more greater and greater distance away from the non-material energy, we can imagine that it then required greater, larger and larger amounts of energy to keep that gateway open. And what we see architecturally are more and more elaborate architectural, megalithic architectural structures built using larger and larger stones and more and more energetic stones until we arrive at the form of the pyramid, which is sort of the culmination of the, of the architectural form. And the Great Pyramid, we know, is built out of stones that have high energetic properties. We know that there are associations between the concept of the pyramid in Egypt and the concept of the Aket, the, the light gateway. So there's a perspective from which we can imagine that one of the purposes of these shrines was to sustain the opening of that gateway as long as they possibly could until ultimately there was no way to sustain it and the gateway closed. Now I can't, I can't objectively prove any of that. I can't objectively demonstrate it, but it's entirely in the mindset of this whole tradition that could have been one of the purposes of the pyramids in Egypt and other places, was to tap natural energies of the earth. They were positioned along ley lines, which are energetic lines, that the purpose of the structures may have been to magnify that energy for the purpose of, one of the purposes may have been to, to maintain this gateway between non-materiality and materiality. Okay. All right, thank you very much for your such a fascinating um, 
response. Uh, thank you very much. Really, that is uh, what we are now to, what we are trying to clarify for us and then show to our viewers uh, on the conference. And one more question, which is also um, very interesting and uh, I could say, I can say significant. It is a secret or, you know, like included form of the word pyramid because uh, this word is also interesting. It consists of two words, and uh, maybe you can share also your um, knowledge of uh, how can we, you know, like uncover the meaning of this word, pyramid. Another function of Egyptian language that I didn't talk about is that there are certain words in the Egyptian language where there is, the word includes a final glyph that is not pronounced in the word, it's silent. And the Egyptologists say that the reason that glyph is there, it's there for emphasis, that the glyph normally uh, bears some relationship to the meaning of the word. And if, for example, if we had a word for table, it might be followed by a picture of a table. I understand working with my approach to the language, that the reason those glyphs are there is because the preceding glyphs define a concept that is symbolized by the image. So the word for pyramid works that way. The Egyptian word for pyramid is a very simple word. It's written with two bent arm glyphs. A bent arm is a symbol for the concept of measure or the concept of a cubit. The final glyph that's not pronounced is a picture of a pyramid. There are two ways to read those leading glyphs. One is to say measure of measures. The other way is to say comparative measures. Now we already know that the purpose of the Dogon granary, which has so many parallels to the concept of a pyramid, was to help us conceptualize or to formalize certain scientific concepts in terms of a structure, to, to relate ideas in terms of a structure. Um, this is going to be a long explanation. Uh, my friend Robert Boval years ago noticed that the three large pyramids at Giza seem to take the same configuration as the three belt stars of Orion. And so his outlook was that they were positioned deliberately to reflect the configuration of the belt stars of Orion. He didn't offer a reason why, he just observed that that was true. And if so, then that pointed to their construction in a particular era at a time when those stars would have appeared over the Giza Plateau in that configuration. When we go to the Dogen myths of creation about the formation of the, the material universe, we come to myths that relate to Ama, the creator deity who creates the non-material domain, and a character named Ogo who plays the role of light or the role of energy. The Egyptian word is Aku, A-A-K-H-U, like the word Aket. The Egyptian word means light, and it refers to a light deity. It's used in other words whose meanings relate to energy or to light. 
Now, Ogo's actions, the actions that he performs in the formation of this universe, of the material universe, Ogo believes that he can create a universe as perfect as the non-material one that Ama created. And so he ends up breaking off a square piece of Ama's womb or Ama's placenta and sort of escaping with it, separating it from the from Ama's universe, and in the process creates our our material universe. But among the actions that Ogo takes are he is said to measure out the universe in eight billion steps. Now I know that the word step is one of the definitions of a cubit. A cubit can be measured in terms of the distance from a person's elbow to the tip of their middle finger, or it can also be measured by the average pace or step of a person. So when they say that Ogo measures out the universe in 8 billion steps, I know that the universe is much, much larger than 8 billion cubits, but one of the figures that has historically been given for the dimensions of the visible universe, the radius of the visible universe, is 8 billion light years. So it occurred to me that someone might be trying to set up an equivalence, a symbolic equivalence, between the concept of a qubit and the concept of a light year. So I went to the Egyptian hieroglyphic language and looked up the Egyptian words for qubit. And one of the words is a compound word, as in English, where two words are combined to create a, a term. The word is aku meh. Aku means light, and meh can mean measure or it can mean cubit. So here, the form of the Egyptian word was confirming what I thought, that the, the concept of a cubit on one level of understanding relates to the concept of a light year. Now, I also knew from Robert Bobal that the, okay, let's back up a bit. I asked myself, how do we know how large an Egyptian cubit was? Well, the way they figured that out was through inference based on the dimensions of the Great Pyramid, they were able to understand that there was a common unit of measure being, a, being used to measure the various dimensions here, and that unit was the cubit. So the Great Pyramid measures 440 uh, cubits per side of its square base and 280 cubits high. So that left me with nowhere to turn. I, I inferred there was a relationship between, between light years and cubits. I knew the pyramids represent, seemed to represent the belt stars of Orion. And I knew that the cubit related to the pyramid. So out of desperation, I went to a search engine. And I keyed in the numbers 440, 280, and Orion. And I turned up references to a very faint spiraling birthplace of stars called Barnard's Loop. Barnard's Loop is so faint, the light it emits is so faint that we can't see it with our eye. You can only see it through time-lapse photography. Now, the Dogen also observed the tradition of placing large stones on a plateau to represent stars that are important in their cosmology, specifically including the belt stars of Orion. And they say that their purpose in pointing us to the belt stars of Orion is to draw our attention to 
a structure they call the chariot of Orion. The French anthropologists who, who reported this imagined that the term chariot referred to the entire constellation of Orion. They interpreted that word chariot to refer to what we see as the entire constellation. But when we use time-lapse photography to image the light from this spiraling birthplace of a star as Barnard's loop, it creates an image that looks like the wheel of a chariot that Orion the hunter is standing in. And so now we have our Dogon chariot of Orion. More, moreover, Barnard's loop measures 440 light years by 280 light years, the same dimensions in light years as the Great Pyramid represents on the ground. So we have self-confirmation of meaning again here, multiple ways of understanding what message was being communicated. The Dogen say that the reason that spiral is important is because, essentially because of the hermetic principle of as, as above, so below. The idea that processes in the macrocosm in some way are fundamentally similar to processes in the microcosm. Well, that structure, the structure of that spiral, its scientific definition, concepts of how it was created, concepts of how, how it will eventually end, all tie out to the Dogen descriptions of a tiny spiral of matter that exists at every point in space and time, the same, uh, the same structure that the Alatra Vesica Pisces is the center point of, that the Dogen, it's, it, it's extremely to the, important to the Dogen to have us understand that there's direct comparison between that spiral of matter and the spiral up in, of Orion. Because once we understand that, then we have a reason to believe objectively that the energetic processes that are at work here are a match for each other. That there's one set of dynamics of energy that play out on all upward scales. The Sirius stars are the same circumstance. The reason that the Sirius stars are important to the Dogen is because their dynamic recreates the dynamic of virtual particles, which is the initiating stage for that spiral that creates. Knowing that there's parallelism in their processes, these energetic processes, is hugely significant because what it means is that even if we don't have access to an electron microscope to be able to observe certain processes in the microcosm or even if we don't have enough of an overview to observe what these processes are for universes on the scale of universes there are domains at which we can observe these processes at work in our own material, everyday material domain, through say dynamics of water and things like that, through our own local uh, planetary domain, through the processes of constellations and planets and the sun and so forth. If we can arrive at an understanding of a concept in relation to any of these domains that we can directly observe, we have a basis to infer what must be true about the process in those domains we can't infer. And so communicating that single idea, the idea to convince us that there's parallelism in these forms uh, endows us with a power of observation and understanding that is absolutely mag 
magnanimous. I don't know. It's it, it's magnificent. It's it's huge. It's gigantic. Um, it opens the door to understanding things we ne uh, in qualitative ways that we're never going to understand quantitatively, or we may never understand quantitatively. So the pyramid concept is wrapped up in that. We can see based on the Orion stars that the pyramids were there to point us to those scientific concepts. I have a friend who is a fellow researcher, a gentleman by the name of Ed Nightingale. Ed is a master wood carver. Uh, to give you an example of what level of wood carving he works on, he has restored artifacts for the Vatican. Um, he has restored artifacts for um, major um, historical institutions around the world in the United States and in Europe. But he learned his skill through apprenticeship, which is very much the process of an initiate and their informant. And as he was learning the woodworking skills, his teacher, presentations given by uh, on cosmology by, by um, presenters throughout the past, people like um, some scientific, some esoteric, on uh, esoteric and symbolic concepts. Um, in the late 1990s, he took a trip to Egypt with my late friend, John Anthony West. And Ed came away from that trip with a woodworker's understanding of a, a master plan with the Giza Plateau. He intuitively understood that the relationship of the structures he saw there were, were not haphazard, that there was an underlying conception that he was um, urgently interested in trying to arrive at understanding. And so he spent the next 20 years actively researching that. The approach he took was to acquire satellite images of the Giza Plateau adjusted for parallax effects that were accurate down to 10 centimeters of distance. And he used those to compare to the three major surveys that have been done on the Giza Plateau uh, in the last 200 years, he discovered that there were made major misrepresentations in each of those surveys, that sometimes a certain feature was misreported, the distance between features was misreported by as much as nine feet. He understood that if you could arrive at the actual geometric relationships and mathematical relationships between these structures that you could arrive at, you could sort of reverse engineer a mindset that produced them and, and infer what the intention was behind that mindset. And so he self-published a book um, called The Giza Template. The book is available on Amazon, where he lays out the, just the initial conception of this idea um, and how information is represented by the forms that are set there. Um, of the three major pyramids on the Giza Plateau, um, 
the two one of the two smaller pyramids is there to define define units of measure. It's all its entire purpose is to define basic basic units of measure that include many of the forms familiar to us. It includes cubits, it includes meters, it includes miles, it includes all, all the major systems of, of of linear measure that we're familiar with. And it uses those measures to uh, Ed uses those measures to explore distances between structures, the angles that structures were built at, the dimensions of the structures themselves, um, the angles of relationship between the structures, and all these things. And from that, what he infers is a plan for the Giza plateau that begins with a circle and a square, as we would expect if we expected it to be symbolic reconciling the figure of a square measured at eight units per side with the figure of a circle with a diameter of nine of those units. That's the way the ancient Egyptians used to roughly equate um, the, the area of a, a square with the circumference of a circle, the same way the Dogen Granary does. And then he plotted a grid on that plan with using the platonic sequences of numbers across the top in units of, of uh, I think, of two and increments down the side in units of three. And then began to plot certain values, key values of energy, of sound, of, of light, and so forth at certain points on the grid. And from that grid, he was able to get a sense of what was being represented in different spots on the grid. And the values begin with plotting out the, a, uh, the seven notes of a musical scale. Now we all know that there's mathematics to the tones of a musical scale, that we can take a vibration of sound and look at increments of that sound, certain increments of that sound, and approximate the notes of the musical scale. But if we do it mathematically, we produce a tone that doesn't sound exactly right to us. Very often, it's just a little bit off what the pure tone would be if we were tuning it by ear. There's a, a predictable difference between that quantitative measure and the actual qualitative measure that, that we perceive. And that difference is encoded into the structure of the Great Pyramid. We might not realize it, but the Great Pyramid doesn't include flat faces, four flat faces that rise to a peak. Each of those faces has a slight indentation that can be seen in the right shadow of sunlight. You can see in photographs, there's an indentation that comes to a point in the middle. So that if you were to take the measure of the indented piece, you would have a slightly longer value than if you took the measure of the straight across value to the edges, or to the corners. That ratio between the indent and the flat measure is the same ratio as between the pure mathematical tone and the actual musical tone. And that concept applies to everything. And so in the Giza complex, they're defining both. They first define, for example, okay, he calls the, the initial measure the root measure, 
the longer measure, the root measure, and the actual measure, the adjusted measure, the, the actual measure. So he first discovers the root measure of the speed of light represented in those structures. And then he demonstrates how the actual measure of the speed of light is derived from that. He, he, he discovers the measures of a right triangle um, on, on the uh, Giza Plateau. Um, and with each one of these measures, he finds self-confirmation of meaning expressed in more than one unit of measure. Very often in three or more units of measure, the same value is repeated so that we can't, can't be mistaken that they intended the value because they expressed it in miles, they expressed it in, I mean, they expressed it in meters, they expressed it in feet, they expressed it in cubits, same value. So from my perspective, the structures on the Giza Plateau as a whole, one of the purposes of those structures is to encode all of the scientific measures. I said that the first pyramids is dedicated to defining the units of measure. The Great Pyramid is um, devoted to defining uh, these scientific units of measure, including uh, significant measures of the dimensions of the Earth itself. The Great Pyramid is traditionally understood to represent a squared hemisphere whose uh, a factor whose dimensions are a factor of the Earth itself. Um, and there's a, a third of the third of the three pyramids is dedicated to defining uh, units of measure of time. Now those structures set on the ground, we know that the pyramids themselves bear a relationship to the belt stars in the, the uh, universe above it. The entire complex bears that same kind of relationship to concepts of astronomical rotations and relationships among constellations in the macrocosm above us. And it can be used in complicated ways to predict certain eras and to predict certain alignments of planets and so forth. Ed has, um, you can spend a week with Ed Nightingale trying to, um, to comprehend the various aspects of this that he has um, conceptualized and written about. So from my perspective, the concept of a pyramid is just one of the elements that, that make up that broader plan of carved into stone. It's a repository of knowledge that's there to help us sort of extend what the symbolic cosmology is telling us. And it extends forward into processes of the universe. Thank you, Lord. It's amazing information. And uh, I would like uh, to ask a small question about uh, granary. Uh, if we're coming back to granary and sacred geometry of pyramids and granary, maybe we can also find there uh, an uh, alat uh, unit, uh, as we talked before, but not, not as a time measure, but as a line measure. That's interesting. You may find that there's also a relationship to time measure because virtually all of the ancient units of time, the 360-day year, the 30-day month, the 60-minute hour, the 12-month year, um, 
all of these are even factors of the grand processional cycle that relates to the yuga cycle that if you take uh 12920 i think is the the number that um is classically associated with the the cycle of the yuga um that each of these numbers is an even factor of that time span uh even the term yuga relates to the tradition i'm talking about the dogen word yu refers to a grain uh, a seed of uh, grain the the smallest grain called the yu seed whose shape is that almond shape of the vesica pisces it's the shape of the gateway that energy passes through the word the dogen word ga refers to concepts of temporality or time it the dogen say it refers to past present and as if in a dream is how they refer to the, the future uh, again sort of associating uh the energetics that are crossing between universes to concepts of dreams but i see i think you that with some exploration we find that your unit of time relates to those units of times all time also and that there's a connection to linear measure um that's just a guess only because i understand the way that whoever put the system together thought they weren't inclined to invent a unit that that wasn't based on something um another uh, mode of confirmation of the science i'm talking about comes out of a a theory called the uh, ether physics model by uh, a graduate student in physics named um let's see uh, David W. Thompson III. He, as a graduate student in physics, became increasingly frustrated by the failure of his teachers to answer certain fundamental questions he was asking. That every concept they described would come down to a point where it relied on on um, postulate, not on actual measurement, and he felt that that was not the right way to approach things. That that wasn't the wasn't a credible way. I mean, it didn't it didn't enable us to to infer where things like dimensions come from, where dimensionality come from comes from. The Dogen system does, but he didn't realize it at the time. But uh, what he chose to do was to leave his studies and work to reformulate a theory of of astrophysics that bases each unit of measure on the smallest unit of measure not on the largest ones and so he reformulates and redefines all of these concepts of physics working from the bottom upward which is um one of the perspectives the dogan also give us um it's what we see with the concept of the sidereal year that um, units of time that we measure on earth are equated to units of time astronomically that there's nothing here that's being given for uh, just incidentally or fortuitously that someone put very serious, careful, um, incredible thought into the consistency of how information was presented. Uh, and understanding that there's consistency to the way that's presented is also a huge benefit because once we know how this authority worked to explain a certain concept, we can presume how they might have exp explained the next concept. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Laird. Mm -hmm. You know, we are always 
amazed by the vastness of your knowledge and uh, we've learned so so much today um it is really really uh, interesting and incredible at uh, how you have this ability to uh, relate things and explain them uh, and uh, this is really precious and you know we uh, know that you uh, published uh, recently a book, uh, The uh, Primal Wisdom of the Asians, The Cosmological Plan for Humanity. And uh, for those interested, uh, we invite them to uh, uh, go and uh, buy it uh, anywhere books are sold. Uh, if they are interested to learn more from you, and uh, this is uh, really, I think, a great source of information. And um, to sum up uh, to our today's talk, uh, we can see that the Alatra sign uh, can be found everywhere in the world, as are the pyramids. And uh, this clearly shows that people all over the world were uh, united by some common knowledge or uh, instruction, as you say. And um, as, you, as you said um, yesterday when we were talking about uh, this interview, uh, the symbol of Alatra is central to all of what uh, we discussed and is one of the very key concepts. And once we understand the Alatra symbol, it points us to all the other main themes in many traditions expressed in other ways in other cultures. So this is really great. And we uh, thank you for your uh, valuable insights and for your kind support of uh, our initiative. And um, we would uh, also uh, like to um, in invite you and everyone to the fifth international online live broadcast of the Kaleidoscope of Facts on the topic of uh, pyramids on uh, December 13th. This uh, is an online conference which is simultaneously translated into 10 languages and uh, scientists and researchers from different parts of the world uh, already worked hard together to, in order to find out uh, why these uh, structures are found not only here on Earth but also on other planets. So Laird, thank you very much. Uh, maybe you would like to say also something to uh, our viewers and uh, thank you. Yes, there, there is uh, one other point, one other principle that I want to emphasize about this material. And that is that the material is not proprietary. We can't emphasize sale books. I don't charge for speaking at conferences, this is not proprietary information. This is information that fundamentally belongs to humanity, that there are active groups of researchers trying to explore. One of the things I value about the group of researchers I work with is that they treat the information as non-proprietary, that they aren't afraid to share an important piece of information with another colleague who's exploring a particular field. Um, and that we all need to treat it that way, that as soon as we start to over, overlay a monetary perspective on any of this, we devalue it and we, we, uh, we diminish it. Um, it's the same uh, way that I view the concept of the um, corporatization of um, agriculture, that the root idea of agriculture is that any of us who discover a seed on the ground should expect that we could plant it in the ground and water it and care for it and have it grow into a plant. Anyone who tries to take actions to prevent that, who tries to then claim that 
they somehow per have proprietary interests in that seed growing, who take steps to prevent us from being able to do that, is working against the whole direction of thought and ethic that we should be valuing. Um, one of the issues I struggled with early in my process was that I was working with information that for, for thousands of years had been kept secret. And so it concerned me that I might not really have the authority to talk about these concepts. Um, so many generations of people have put so much effort into keeping them secret. On what basis could I claim authority to talk about them ultimately? Well, I finally resolved that for myself by realizing that the structure is about science and that the science that's being discussed is only um, a short period of time, maybe a, a century most ahead of what our scientists understand. So that if we were to talk about it now, that the whole attention of whoever put the system together would be a waste because their knowledge would never have contributed to our knowledge. I'm also comforted by the fact that in the first ancient tradition that ever drew my attention as a child, the, the Minoan tradition in Crete, this same system of symbology and of science and of creation is understood academically to have been talked about freely and openly. They did, they did not consider the concepts to be in any way proprietary. At the same time, the ancient Egyptians were, had secret mystery schools of instruction with the initiates, the Minoans were talking about it out in the open air with everybody. And I firmly believe that that's where the, the model that we want to emulate is the Minoan model, that we are now at a point in our existence where it's time to think about these concepts openly and to learn from them and to improve our ethic from them. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, Alexia. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to say that, uh, Alert, thank you very much for sharing your uh, inner understanding of uh, the true essence of science. What is true science really? And that information, it should be, it must be available and open for everyone. There cannot be any secrets from humanity and knowledge. They really belong to to humanity, to all people. Thank you very much for sharing it. And we would like also to invite you and uh, your audience uh, to take part in a huge uh, global online uh, conference, unique international online conference, Creative Society, United We Can All, uh, United We Can. So this conference is uh, dedicated to the project, to the idea of creative society, of building the creative society, society where uh, the life of each person is truly available, available, sorry, valuable. Yes, and uh, where each person uh, can have access to information, to free education, to free medicine, to <laughs> agriculture, as you said, to resources of our planet, where all people are really equal. And you know, the most uh, precious idea that we can build such a society without wars, without revolutions, just evolutionary through understanding of necessary of change, changes. We all, all people understand that our, um, our society should be changed and that only we can change our society through our actions uh, towards um, 
good future for us and for future generations. And we are happy to invite you also to take part and to watch this conference. Maybe you guys wanted to add something also. Thank you all very much for inviting me to participate in this. I have the, the greatest admiration for all of you and for the work that you're doing. And I appreciate the collaboration, the opportunities to collaborate. And please don't hesitate to, to contact me if there's the, the least question that you're interested in trying to research. I'm happy to help do that. Maybe between our perspectives, we can arrive at something that neither of us understood before, such as with the sidereal year information, the questions, there's as much value in the question as there is in the answer. Awesome, awesome. Thank you very much, Laird. Uh, I mean, this is really precious that, you know, when people come together and um, uh, they work towards one goal, and this goal is actually as uh, our uh, motto for the kaleidoscope effects is uh, time has come to uh, give back truth to people. So this is what we are trying to do. And uh, with your help also, it's uh, much, much easier because you've learned so, so, so much things about uh, uh, the connections and the cultures all over the world. And this cannot be coincidental. So thank you very much. And um, we uh, would like now to... Uh, roll the uh, invitation trailer for the uh, kaleidoscope effects pyramids and we thank you and everyone who uh, helped to uh, make uh, this broadcast happen uh, the uh, streamers translators and uh, everyone involved for their work and our dear viewers for their attention hope you learned a lot of new things and uh, until next time be well pyramids why are they found not only all over the earth, but also on other planets. This topic keeps raising curiosity amongst researchers and scientists from all over the world. Global Pyramid Complex A dormant mechanism awaiting for those who will activate it. What is its purpose? Mount Kailash, the unconquered peak of Tibet, or the great legacy of architects of the distant past. Why are all the pyramids of Earth oriented to Kailash? Sacred Geometry of the Pyramid The ancients knew that the human energy structure has a pyramidal shape, but why did we forget about it? Pyramid of the 21st century, studying the unique capabilities of a person in practice. Star map on Earth, what did people of knowledge encrypt for future generations in the arrangement of pyramid complexes? Cyclical nature of climatic catastrophes, 12,000 years. What is the role of the pyramid complex in the times of global cataclysms? and what is the responsibility of each person for the future of our civilization. We invite experts and scientists from various fields and all interested people to participate in a joint search for answers to these and other questions. It's time to return the truth to people.